My name is Chris Ginshear. There we go. And it is a pleasure to be back with you guys. I've been here a few times preaching through the Gospel of John. And I uh, just want to thank Paul and the rest of the elders for inviting me to keep coming back and opening God's Word with y'all. So today we're going to continue. When I come, I preach through the Gospel of John. And so it's been a few weeks. We're going to pick up right where we left off in John chapter 4, verse 31. And before I read this, I got to tell you, um, I was talking with my wife. And she's like, so what are you preaching on? And I told her, well, we're going to continue with John 4, and we're starting at verse 31. And she's like, why did you stop the last sermon before then? And I'm like, you know, that's a good question. The reality was it was 30 verses, and that's just a lot to cover in one time. But what you'll pick up on is it really was right in the middle of the story John was trying to tell. And so when we pick up, we're going to start reading. It says, meanwhile, so i got to give you just a little bit of context. What had just happened in John chapter 4, Jesus and the disciples are traveling through a, uh, a geographic neighbor but foreign territory called Samaria. And they come upon a well. Jesus is thirsty. He asks for a drink of a Samaritan woman who's there by herself. And they have a great conversation that results in the woman's life being radically changed. As she leaves Jesus to go back into the town, the disciples come to, back to Jesus, and this is where we pick up the rest of the story. So John 4, verse 31, says this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he, the son, was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't know about you, but I think, I think it's really hard to actually live by faith. I mean, just think about what that means when we say that. It, we have to literally live our lives in such a way that we believe things we can't readily see right now. I think that's why we hold inventors in such high regard. I mean, just think about it. We, we hold up in a, a cultural and business sense uh, people like Steve Jobs, right? Someone who could see the potential of merging technologies that we now have in probably all of our pockets right now. I mean, technology that literally is more advanced than what launched rockets and spaceships to the moon is readily available at our fingertips. And it was because a man like Steve Jobs said, this is possible. Not that I could see it. Or uh, take Henry Ford, a man who radically transformed the way that we go from place to place. I mean, literally, he said, people want a faster horse. I'm going to build something different completely. And we have the Model T Ford and now automobiles that let us go from this place to that place in an unprecedented kind of way. I mean, these men, in some ways, radically changed the world we live in because they had faith to see something that wasn't readily available. Here's another one that comes to mind. How about Jacques Cousteau? Now, I know for some of you maybe who uh, even are younger than me don't even know who Jacques Cousteau was. Jacques Cousteau was a legendary French naval officer, oceanographer, and filmmaker. He transformed how we understand the underwater world. His invention of the scuba tank And use of underwater cameras in the 20th century brought the mysteries of the ocean into homes around the world. And he once said this, he said, The sea, once it casts its spell, holds one in its net of wonder forever. His life's work unveiled the mysteries of the ocean, a vast unseen world beneath the surface of what we could perceive. His pining spirit led him to explore the depths of the sea. I mean, just imagine that. You have to think there's more to explore that would let you create the scuba tank and venture into the darkness. But that's exactly what he did. He revealed a hidden realm teeming with life and wonders previously unknown to humanity. His explorations brought to light not just a new species, but entire ecosystems. And if you'll forgive me for a moment, literally a whole new world. Now, for those of you who raised your kids on Disney films, you understand why I said, please forgive me. Little Mermaid. He did all this and he changed our understanding of our planet. The journey into the depths is much like our spiritual journey. Just as Cousteau discovered unseen wonders beneath the waves, Jesus invites us to explore a spiritual depth beyond our current perception, to see the unseen and to grasp the eternal. And this is where our journey through the Gospel of John leads us into the depths of reality itself revealing the unseen wonders of God's kingdom, just waiting to be discovered. This is what John 4, 31 through 54, is inviting us into, to embark 
on our own exploration and uncover the mysteries of faith and vision. And this is really the big idea, is that faith never follows sight. You have to have faith in order to see. We, we get it backwards. We think we'll believe it when we see it, but that's not how reality ever works. You have to believe there's something worth seeing in order to see it in the first place. So what is it that our faith allows us to see in this passage? First, it allows us to see reality with a sense of urgency. Look back on what's happening here. Jesus had just spoken with the Samaritan woman. And she immediately leaves her jar where she was gathering water and goes back into the town. She goes with a sense of urgency that she completely abandons her agenda for the day. And what she does, she goes to the town to tell them, meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. And when, they, when she says this, the whole village, the whole town comes out to see Jesus. She left, and a whole town comes back with her. The disciples left Jesus, and all they came back with was lunch. She had a sense of urgency about her after she encountered Jesus. And yet they come back, and they simply urge Jesus to eat in verse 31. This is why you think Jesus is, is maybe rude, uh, right? The disciples, they probably had the best of intentions. They, they wanted, to, they wanted to, to feed their friend. They wanted to feed their rabbi. They wanted him to be uh, nourished and built up, right? They have no idea exactly what's going on. They just know that they left to go get him something to eat, and now he's coming back saying he has food that they don't know anything about. So their, their initial questions are a little comical but understandable, well, Jesus, did someone give you something to eat already? Like, like, if it were me, I'd probably be thinking, why did I just waste my time if you had a snack, if you had a Lunchable in your sack, and I went to the village to go get you something to eat? There's probably a little bit of all this swirling around in their head. This is why they say, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? Did someone bring you something to eat already? And Jesus responds, well, what are you talking about? Can't you see what's happening around you? At this point, the Samaritans are gathering around Jesus. Before they left, Jesus was asking a woman for some water, and now a whole town is gathering around them. Jesus is saying, can't you see what's happening around you? All the disciples could see was a missed meal or a pointless errand. And Jesus invites them to see something much deeper and more significant. I wonder how many times do we miss out on opportunities to see something deeper and more significant. Because we just think, it's Wednesday at 3 p.m., or it's just another errand I have to run, or this is just what happens at this time, or it's just a repeat of what we do all day, every day. I mean, I think most of us, if we're honest, we feel like we live our lives like it's an episode of Groundhog Day, a never-ending loop of the same day in the same thing over and over and over again. And it's just what we do. Like it's a, a rut we can't get out of. Life is not meant to be a reliving of Groundhog Day where we live this never-ending, always-on always cycle, loop, and repeat of the same thing we did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. Too many of us live not in the present, but simply repeating the past. And what Jesus is saying here is life is meant to be an adventure. We live with him every moment of every day with the unimaginable results we can't even fathom. 
if only we had the faith to see it and to engage these normal everyday moments with a certain sense of unrealistic and unreasonable expectancy that Jesus just might want to do something different, something a little bit deeper. We lose our sense of adventure, and thus we lose our sense of the kingdom of God when we live with too much familiarity with Jesus and not enough urgency of the current situation. Seeing what's possible when Jesus enters the situation we find ourselves in. This is what he wants his disciples to get. Faith allows you to see the urgency of the situation. It also allows us to see the work Jesus is doing. Jesus gets into the discussion a, a, a interesting one, to say the least, of farming, sowing, and reaping. Right Here they are, they're traveling, they're worried about lunch and water, and the Samaritans are, are gathering around, and Jesus says, don't you see what's happening here? And he goes in and he talks about all of this in verses 35 through 42 where he says, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. That's just natural. When you're a farmer, right, you have periods where you're preparing the ground, you're tilling the soil, you're planting your crop, and then you've got to wait a while before you actually reap the harvest. I think farming is a great analogy for the life of faith. I mean, how much faith does it take to say, I'm going to expend all this energy and work over here? just in the hopes that I might see some tangible benefit later on. And Jesus is saying, listen, isn't it the time where we say now we're planting and later we'll harvest? What he wants them to see is, let's get out of the farming ecological world for a second and see what's happening around you. Samaritans are gathering. It's now time to reap. What are you doing, disciples? In this instance, Jesus even mentions, right, that it's not one farmer or one person who sows and reaps, but there's actually two. Another sows and another reaps. And this has led to some kind of interesting, well, let's just call them theories, not guesses, but theories of who Jesus is referring to here. One interesting one I found was uh, some people think Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. And if you remember through our time in, in John's gospel, John the, the writer of the gospel is really fixated on John the Baptist, especially early on. He, he gets almost as much airtime as Jesus in the gospel. And so it's an interesting theory. And, and people say this, theologians and historians, because John the Baptist was mentioned in John chapter 3 as conducting his ministry in a similar vicinity of Samaria. He was at the, the pool of Anon near Selim which is not too far off from Samaria. In fact, it's much closer to Samaria than it is Judea or Galilee or anywhere else that a self-respecting, upstanding Jewish individual would find themselves. He was there ministering outside of the established and proper religious community. And when he was there in the wilderness, it's not too far to think that Samaritans would have been at least within an earshot of his ministry and what he was talking about. What made me think this theory actually has some, some merit to it is if you think back to the Samaritan woman's conversation with Jesus and she tries to change the subject to religious theological discussions instead of her own sin and need for salvation, 
she mentions this very peculiar detail that says, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will reveal all things. That was at the core of John the Baptist's message. That he was not the one to come, but he was the one to prepare the way for the one who is to come. And here she is saying the exact same theme, statement, topic. We know the Messiah is coming, and that's when Jesus says, that's me. And she leaves the water jar and goes back to the town. Maybe it was Jesus referring to the fact that John the Baptist had been laboring for years throughout his whole ministry. And now we're starting to see what we can reap from that among the Samaritan people. John the Baptist sowed into the masses, in other words, and reaped the curiosity of an individual. But there's something even more closer to home I think Jesus was referring to. Jesus, he had just sown into this woman in a period of one conversation. And now he's reaping an entire village. They're coming out. The woman is the one who sowed into the village, and now they're coming out to see Jesus. The woman sowed a conversation with Jesus and reaped a whole new life. Jesus sowed into the woman and reaped a whole town. Jesus is now sowing into the 12 disciples, and what will they reap? It's interesting that in asking that question, you notice what happens with the Samaritans. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him, verse 39, because of the woman's testimony. But verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Now, if you remember in in this context, hospitality is a really big deal. Uh, In in a Jewish context, in a Middle Eastern context, you, you offer hospitality even to people who might be perceived as your enemies. But normally that kind of hospitality would last like a short duration of time, right? Enough to say that you did it, but not really enough to say you wanted to. And instead, they implored Jesus, who to them is an outsider, geographically close, but culturally an enemy. But they invite him to stay for two days. In other words, this this is more than just checking a box of hospitality. This is even more than just kind of Morbid curiosity. This is, we, we want to see this and experience this for ourselves. Will you stay with us? And Jesus stays with them for two days. And notice the result of what happens. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And then they said to the woman, verse 42... It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not the one who puts his stamp on approval of what we've done and vindicated us as being in the right. Not the one who picked our side over the the Jewish-Israeli side. Jesus isn't the one who's picking his favorites. Jesus is the savior of the world. This they finally see for themselves. You know, when you think about it, everyone has their own kind of preconceived notions and ideas. Not just about God, but just about the way life is supposed to work, 
and where we fit into the, the spectrum of right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, good and bad. Right? The Jews at the time, they wanted to kick out the Romans. But instead, Jesus comes with his kingdom, and now they become part of a kingdom beyond the promised land. The Samaritans, they, they wanted to be right. They wanted their way of, of worship and doing life to be stamped as this is the right way. And instead, they become members of a much larger, even more diverse family than even they could imagine. The disciples, they just wanted to follow a rabbi. Instead, they were commissioned to spread the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he shatters everyone's preconceived ideas of the way life is supposed to work. Who's good? Who's bad? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's better? Who's worse? Jesus says, all y'all need me. Y'all are all more screwed up than you think. But guess what? You're also invited into something much deeper and more significant than you can even dream. I wonder what areas of your life, my life, are we holding on to expectations so tightly that we're missing out on the larger plan God has for us? Can you even identify a time when maybe initial disappointment or confusion turned out to be a setup for an even greater work that God could do and would do in your life? Maybe you can't identify a time. Can you at least imagine that happening? If so, that, that means you're, you're, you can identify and start to see how you can live by faith and see what God is doing, even in some of the hardest things you have to go through and experience. Maybe, just maybe, God is up to something, and there's a, there's a story, there's a significance, there's something happening just beyond our level of perception. If faith allows us to see life with a sense of urgency, and it allows us to see the work that Christ is doing, Faith also allows us to see the transforming power of Christ in this world. We, we continue on in what Jesus is doing. He, he leaves Samaria. He enters back into his own people, his own land. After the two days, verse 43, he departed for Galilee. And we get this really interesting kind of parenthetical note that the, John, the gospel writer, wants us to see. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. I don't know about you, but I always find these little tidbits fascinating. Like, I think sometimes we just kind of blitz through reading the scriptures, and we kind of latch on to, like, the really, um, you, you know, the verses you do needlepoint for, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? All these things are great, I love zeroing in on the things that almost make no sense or that seem like, why, why include this in here? This is one of those verses where it's like, why, why are we told this? One, I mean, Jesus' hometown is, is Nazareth. His, his family is from Bethlehem. We're just told that Jesus goes back to Galilee up in the, the north part of the promised land, right, where you leave Samaria and you go in, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
The word hometown actually comes from a Greek word, patris. It's where we get our word patriot. It's probably better translated as homeland or country. So what, what John, the gospel writer, is trying to get us to see is that Jesus is, is leaving a people who are not his people in Samaria and coming back to his own people, his homeland, his, his country folk. This is important because it seems like the Galileans are excited that Jesus is back with them. It says that, right? Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, this seems promising. But why did they welcome him? It says they welcomed him because they saw all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So what happened is in John chapter 3, Jesus has um, an interesting conversation with Nicodemus. He goes into Jerusalem where all the, the Israelites are there gathered for the feast. And while he's there, he's performing miracles. He's doing signs and wonders. And he, he gets into this rage because he sees what the religious establishment is doing in the tabernacle. They're, they're engaging in, in selling and trading. And they're leaving no room for people outside of the Israelite community to come closer to the place where God is supposed to meet with his people. That They're crowding out the outsiders. In Jesus, this is where we're told he, he, you know, people ask, well, what would Jesus do? And one option is, well, he'd make a whip out of cords and belt and probably beat you senseless and turn over some tables. Like, that is something Jesus did. And that's John chapter 3. And it's right after that where the religious leaders start to see, hey, this Jesus has a growing following. His platform is increasing. His, His reputation is spreading. And he's causing us some issues. In fact, his reputation is starting to eclipse John the Baptist, who we also don't like. And that's when Jesus says he left Jerusalem to go to Samaria. Now he's coming back, and the Galileans who were there were like, oh, what is Jesus going to do next? (laughs) He did all kinds of signs and wonders. He really upset some people back in Jerusalem. I mean, what is this guy going to do next? They were excited. They, they had a, a curiosity about Jesus. This is why, if you notice, when the official comes to Jesus and says, please come heal my son, Jesus' response almost seems out of, out of pocket, just not right. <laughs> right? He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. If I were that dad, I would probably be offended It's like I'm coming to you, begging you to save my son, and you're trying to give me a lecture on what I believe and what I don't believe. But that's not who Jesus was talking to. The the you in verse 48 is actually plural, not singular. So when Jesus seems to respond to the official, he's actually talking to all the people around him. That includes the official. It's Jesus literally saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What I love about this is the official, son, the, the official who has the ill son says, what do you mean, you people? It's almost like he's indignant at the fact. He says, I'm not like them, Jesus. They're here because they're curious about you. 
They're here because they just want to see you do something for them. I'm here because I desperately need you. Not only do I need you, my son needs you. Without you, he's going to die. That seems like the natural reaction of a father who loves and will do anything for his son. He's not there for a show. He's there because he desperately needs Jesus to show up in a way he cannot do for himself or for those he loves. This official is interesting to me. He's, he's described as an official, which means he was either a, a Gentile or he was a, a Hellenized Jew, which just means a, a, an Israelite who was more Gentile than he was Jewish. He, he identified more with the powers that be and was given a place of prominence within the government of a local people to kind of rule and reign at a, a minor level. He was like a city commissioner for the Roman Empire, from the people, but maybe not necessarily of the people. And yet he's the one who comes to Jesus and begs him to come to a son who's dying. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. Did you notice his response in the passage when I read it? It was almost just a, I don't want to say flippant, because nothing's flippant about Scripture, but it just didn't seem to match the tone and the seriousness of the situation. Jesus says, go, your son will live. And it says the official believed and went on his way. I don't know about you, but if that were me, I'd be like, okay, Jesus, I want to believe you, but can you give me just a little bit more to go on? Can, can you show me the, the medical report? Can you, can you show me something? Can you, can you deliver some other kind of evidence before I just take you at your word? Would, would it be enough for you if what you desperately asked Jesus for said, go, it's going to happen? It was enough for this father, but I want you to see something too. The father leaves, and we're told that he's met by his people coming from him, or coming to him, right? And it said that in verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday. Again, that's one of those fun details that we tend to just read over sometimes if we read too fast. Do you realize what that means? Jesus talked to this official. Then the official leaves, and he meets his household, and the household says, your son was healed yesterday when Jesus had spoken with the official. What that really means is the father actually left a day before he talked to Jesus. Then he talked to Jesus Jesus says, go, your son will live. And then he has to leave and go another day to get back home. If you thought he had enough faith to approach Jesus with his dying son ill at home, how much faith did he have to have to leave his dying son in the first place? I mean, we would look at a father who who leaves his dying son who's sick, and we would say, you monster. How dare you? Let's call child protective services on this guy. I mean, this is just, this is cruel. And yet this father, this official, he had, he had no other place to go. 
He could do nothing. He was literally powerless, even though he was a man in power. He had to go to the only place, the only person who could do something about this. And that meant he had to leave his home, hoping to see something he couldn't perceive when he left. When did the official actually express his faith? Was it after Jesus said, go, your son will live? Or was it when he packed up his bag in a haste and left his son the day before? He didn't know what shape his faith would take. He just knew he had to believe there was something someone could do, especially this man named Jesus. So he embarked on a journey, hoping to see something he could barely, if at all, perceive. He did what any of us would do when we realized just how desperate we really are. When we can't do anything for ourselves and we can barely make out the outline of what we so desperately want life to be. Just like this official, we are only, can only do the most rational thing, and that's to trust it all into the hands and timing of Jesus, the Son of God and Savior of the world. So, in your own spiritual journey, let me ask you this. Are you more driven by curiosity about Jesus or God or life? Or are you driven by a deep personal need for his intervention in your life? His, his, his interjecting himself into the daily ins and outs, regular routine, sometimes the highs and definitely the lows you experience. Do you, do you need him to be there? Or are you just kind of, let's see what Jesus will do. This passage, while applicable to all who hear or read it, isn't really about the masses. It's about you. It's deeply personal, not just historical or theological. Notice how it ends. In verse 54, John, the gospel writer, gives us another interesting detail where he says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In John's gospel, he's going to record seven signs, the first of which, John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. And the only ones who knew about it were his disciples, his mother, and the uh, wedding servants. The second sign Jesus does here in John chapter 4, and the only ones who knew were, again, the disciples, the official, and his household. Two out of the seven signs Jesus does, not for the masses, but for the people close enough to actually be impacted by what he does with those miracles. These signs, in other words, they're, they're more than miracles. They're profound truths woven into the fabric of history, calling those who receive them and us to a faith that finds its deepest expression not in what we see, but in whom we trust. This is what John 4 invites us to, a life of faith that puts everything into the hands of Jesus and surprises us by what he wants to do in our mundane and everyday moments that we live in this life. Let's trust him with that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the fact that we can't even see all that you are up to, but we can trust you with everything that you put before us. You don't just invite us to wonder. You invite us to place everything into your hands. And we know that we can trust you even when we can barely perceive you. You don't leave your people hanging. You come to our aid and we look for you to do that now. Even as we come to your table, will you feed us by faith so that we can go out into this world and experience you in all that you would have for us? And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.